interestingly, I think strength and conditioning is a very simple concept at its core. It, it, and if we can master those, those fundamentals, I, I think that gives us a lot of the tools. And then the secrets lie in those relationships, those, the way in which we do something as much as what we do. to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. I'm going to put it out there right from the start and say that this is one of the most entertaining and informative podcasts I have ever done, especially in the area of change direction and agility. So a fascinating, fascinating insight from Ian around the testing or lack of when it comes to change direction and his ability to coach agility and how you can go about that as well. It's something that's come up a couple of times in the podcast recently about the lack of testing from a change direction point of view that coaches are doing or not doing out there. So it kind of reaffirms that, but also goes one level deeper and dives into the coaching aspects of agility, not a change direction, but agility and some examples of how Ian has done that in his own practice and how he encourages other coaches to do the same. So trust me, you'll want to get a notebook, get a notepad, get a pen or pencil and get ready for the next hour because it is absolute gold. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Satanta College. Led by Dr. Liam Hennessy, Satanta College provides coaches with the opportunity to take their career to the next level with qualifications in strength and conditioning and performance science. Satanta's blended learning approach ensures you have flexibility to continue your studies alongside your coaching practice. And lectures are delivered online with practical workshops held in locations across Ireland, the UK, the United States, India and South Africa. Courses are designed by experts in the field of sports science, including Professor Ian Jeffries and Des Ryan, with a focus on practically applying the most current methodologies in your day-to-day coaching. Applications are now open for the MSc in Performance Coaching and MSc in Applied Sport and Exercise Psychology, along with a range of strength and conditioning programs from certificate to degree level. Visit stantacollege.com for more information and how to apply. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with Ian Jeffries. Ian Jeffries, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. Thank you very much. That's a pleasure to be on board. It's taken some time, I think. It has. You've been badgering me for a while, but uh, I've finally succumbed. 
I like the word stalking, but yeah, I I don't mind yours badgering. Makes me sound less weird. (laughs) It does sound a little more respectable, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. But thank you for joining me um, in and around and around your your travels and your uh, newish job. Yes. What is the newish job? Time for me. Tell us more. Um, Well, I. Retired from my role at the University of South Wales at the end of last year, and midway through this year, took a role at Satanta College as academic director, and it is an exciting role. I've been able to link up with two great and old friends of mine, Des Ryan and Liam Hennessy, and it's an exciting time in trying to develop a range of educational uh, provision that spans the introductory level right up to the master's degree level. And we hope we're going to produce some really exciting courses over the next few years. So for someone that, how long were you at University of South Wales, by the way? I was there, ooh, 2007, I so that it was close to 13 years. Okay. So for someone that's been involved in education for some time, and this is a very contentious subject, as always, as always in our industry. What are the good things that are happening when it comes to education of young strength and conditioning coaches and what needs to be improved? First up, I think the fact that we have education, you know, I, I think back to my early years, there was nothing, absolutely nothing. We just learned on the job, which had some advantages, but God, it was hard. You know, trying to, it, 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 it meant more mistakes than successes. It, it required diligence in, in terms of just trying to figure things out and trying to source information was a nightmare. So I think the fact that now we have formal education is a huge boon. And, you know, today strength and conditioning coaches are far, far more educated than my generation ever was. That brings brings huge advantages. I also think there there are inherent dangers in it, in that the way in which we define what the industry is, the way in which we define the content we need to know can itself be limiting. And it can potentially constrain some of the areas that perhaps we do need to expand upon to, to be the holistic, the, the, the generalist coach that we're looking that we're looking that we're looking for we're looking for too obsessed by measurement and and again it's 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 a balance measurement and testing and all of those kind of things are integral to what we do but whenever we frame something we naturally exclude things and i think sometimes some of the secrets to effective coaching may lie in some of those things that we're currently excluding so i think our journey to education is not complete and it probably just needs to just broaden out that little bit to ensure that we, we're building coaches as well as knowledgeable practitioners. When you say education and <clears throat> that been a, I suppose, a gift that, that we've got now, that will probably, for the younger coaches listening, that will probably be a, well, yeah, obviously, but it, when you think about it, it's so new. 
It is so new, and it, and the surveys absolutely yeah. new. Yeah. So so I I was um, coming out of school in the very very early eighties, and realistically, the only choices you had were to go to a traditional teacher training college, to, which were the the evolving PE degrees, or you study the more academic route. We didn't have sports science degrees. We did not have, well, we definitely didn't have strength and conditioning degrees. These are remarkably new on the block. Uh, although it looks that they're old hats, they absolutely aren't. So, so, so really our options of, of my generation were, were extremely limited. I bring this up all the time because there is people who've come through a similar time to you who have been PE teachers or trained to be PE teachers. A number of people come to mind. Eddie Jones, who came on the podcast, PE teacher. Um, Kelvin Giles, more recently, Vern Gambetta. All these people came through that PE background and all lean on that as a reason why they've had the success they've had because they've been teachers and that teacher been coach and coach been teacher. Have we lose? Have we lost that with this, the kind of formalization of specific strength and conditioning education? I think we have to some extent. It's it's just a different skill set, mm-hmm. and 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 it's it's a different way of approaching a, a problem. So that the PE teachers will look will will come from that coaching type background. So they'll they'll probably not necessarily have. The scientific analysis that our newer practitioners will do, but may understand a little bit more how to apply things, how to get the the buy-in from players, how to build the relationships and so on, which are absolutely crucial to uh, a functioning strength and conditioning program. It, it, it's interesting, you know, one of the things that we'll, when we look back is that when we developed or when people developed strength and conditioning programs they emerged from sports science now they could just as easily have emerged from physical education and had they done so i think we would have had a different profession and we may have well been saying at that said, right we're great at the coaching but we need more science to back us up and there's there's always a path dependency once you you the viewpoint comes that strength and conditioning is very much a science. It naturally leads us in a certain direction. And with everything, once you set up on a certain direction, it's very difficult to change path. So that if, if you look now, very few PE teachers are necessarily strength and conditioning experts. We're getting more kind of the sports science graduate going into strength and conditioning. And that's not a bad thing. It's just a different thing. And I think what we need to do is just to appreciate the strengths of that approach, but also the potential drawbacks of that approach and have mechanisms by which we can address those drawbacks. And and once we start to do that, I think we really will end up with a fit-for-purpose education system. Would you agree in the fact that we've gone down that track and there's many institutions out there 
who have talked about doing this and actively do it. Some do it really well, maybe some don't do it as well, who have gone down that track and are trying to rein it back towards that very practical, like, let's get the students in front of people, like anyone, whether it be in a football club, rugby club, or just a group, and try to develop them skills that maybe would have been developed if they'd have gone down the PE, physical education teacher track, which potentially have been lost because of down this sports science track? Yeah. I, there are undoubtedly a lot of very good institutions that, that are trying that. I think one of the challenges is that now that the control is within the university systems, you have to fight those systems as well. So, so that the way in which courses are controlled, the way in which they're managed and so on, sometimes to put that brake on and say, right, we need to do something else is not necessarily as easy. Courses may be combined. You may be studying in with your anatomy and physiology with different uh, cohorts, sports science students and so on. And then once you make one change, that necessarily has a knock-on effect on multiple things. And sometimes even if the intent and, and, and the goodwill is there to do it. The control of that course has, has, has kind of passed on to different people that it's it's not always as easy to, to make those changes as, as we would wish it to be. Which is why people from the outside may just, well, just change it, like introduce this, this, this. Well, that's probably going to take three or four years to actually... Just not even that, do it, but potentially do it because people down the line exactly, may change, exactly, may have different yeah, ideas. Yeah, you, you know, and, and universities have their own bureaucracy in it, and any change has to go through all of those processes, which, as you indicate, often takes a remarkable amount of time. So you mentioned you mentioned there Ian, about the abundance of information, which wasn't available to you when you started out, but is potentially well definitely overwhelming for many right now how do you how do you manage the information that you take in and is there any resources that you go to to enable that or how what any tips and tricks i'm a skim reader hmm. so so i i, I I'm, I'm very lucky in a way, is that at the back end of my career, I'm, I'm very easy to select the information that I know is relevant to me. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing less coaching and more coach education. And my coach education is very much in specific aspects of it. So that helps me control the, the mechanisms. The other thing that I rely on is other people. It, 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 it sounds counterproductive, but... I'm very lucky to have a lot of very good filters of information. So I don't necessarily do all the reading, but people will say, I think this is important. I think this is relevant. Have a look at this and so on. Uh, so it's, it's kind of teams of people controlling the information. But I've got to admit that probably most of my reading now is, is, is away from the core of strength and conditioning. It's more exploring the outer reaches of the strength and conditioning universe and, and looking at ways in which we can enhance our practice, especially when it comes to the coaching sides and setting up systems and programs and ecosystems and so on that 
probably interests more me more now than the nuts and bolts of exercise technique and bits and pieces like that. Do you think, and this is a, a loaded question, as you can probably tell uh, by the by the tone of it, but do you think younger practitioners are potentially trying to be where you are, looking at the outer reaches of the SNC universe, and getting excited about that, not having put in the work, doing the X's and O's, and that's only my my perception, but you're seeing and speaking to a lot more people than I am, student wise. I I I think potentially we're it's a human bias. We're fascinated by the modern, the new. Uh, I, I mean, if if you if you look Christmas time, people are going to have uh, new phones, new technology. Not necessarily because they need them. Not necessarily because they're better than what they currently have, but because they're new and they they glisten and and so on. And I think sometimes that's yes, we can get drawn into that that the the allure of the new. And interestingly, I think strength and conditioning is a very simple concept at its core. It, it, and if we can master those, those fundamentals, I, I think that gives us a lot of the tools. And then the secrets lie in those relationships, those, the way in which we do something as much as what we do. But again, we get tend to pull into the what, you know, the new YouTube video of this stunning new exercise or this new uh, piece of equipment that's going to revolutionise what we do. And I guess people of my ilk have been around for, for so long that we've seen all of these new things come and go. And what is remarkable is how much of the new is simply old badged old. You know, it's it's just a new description of something that probably was around in the the seventies, early eighties, and so on. But yes, I think there is. We do need to master the, the fundamentals of what we do, and then explore those, as 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 we said, the outer reaches of of how we do things. It's just come to me then when you mentioned YouTube, but I think, and please correct me if I'm wrong, you are one of the only, if not the only person that's been on the podcast who doesn't have social media profiles. I am is a, this, is I this am correct or has this changed? A dinosaur. <laughs> um, I used to work with Chris Toombs uh, at, at the university in, in South Wales and he just used to give up on me. Why aren't you doing this? You, you, you're so behind the times, bless him. But um, no, I don't think I'll ever change on that. I know Sean in Satanta is also keen for me to get involved, but uh, it's beyond my technological expertise. But on a more serious... Is, is that the only reason? No, is that the only reason? No, or is, it's, yeah. it's not. I'm not a fan. Um, I know how much... I could get dragged in and how much of a time sapper it potentially is. And I think it just puts certain pressures on you, certain expectations of you have to be posting, you have to be doing this, you have to. Be. And then quite easily you can forget what, what you actually do. 
So I, I found it much easier for me to say, right, I'm not doing that. Undoubtedly, it causes me issues. I can't get messages out. People don't know when things are happening and so on. But it protects my time. And to, to me, that is the most valuable resource I have. Love it. Yeah. I'm sold. I'm oh, sold. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> when, I, when I send you, as I do with all podcast guests, a bit of a list of things that I think listeners may be interested in that you specialize in and or have spoken in or written in or whatever that may be. And obviously change direction and agility, well, agility is, is, was on the list. And one of the things was testing. And as I said to you just before you pressed record, over the last probably year or 18 months, maybe two years, when agility and change direction has come up in conversation, testing has been a bit poo-pooed and, oh, we don't, no, we don't do any testing. It's because of this, that, and the other, which previous to that, it may have been more well-discussed and people may be including it in their, in their program or testing battery. From your point of view, has testing the qualities around change direction agility ever being ever being valued and if it has at what point did the switch happen excellent question and i i, I think whatever i say now is, is going to antagonize some and delight others because we do seem <laughs> to get into camps on this um if I look at strength and conditioning and where I think it is at the moment, that probably starts to give clues uh, about how I think on this. I think there is a temptation for us to mathematize everything. We want figures. We find that that gives us... We're, we're always looking for clarity. We're always looking for credence and that certainty in, in what we do. And... If, if you think what we talked about earlier in, in the scientific realm that has dominated strength and conditioning, data and figures are the way in which we get that clarity. So we are always looking to measure things. And that can be a great bonus, but it can also send us off course that little bit. So, you know, when I think back, I used to test agility. And I've always tested uh, linear running speed, but I started to question it. And the main, you know, if, if I look back, we, we called them agility tests then. What we, we would now call them is our change of direction tests. And what I wasn't seeing was how, whether the athletes getting better at the test was translating into improved performance or just as importantly, was the information I was getting from the tests actually helping me make intelligent decisions with the training? What I was finding was that I was getting actually more information by watching athletes move in various movement patterns, various movement scenarios, and that would give me as much information on which to base the program as the test. So that was probably the, the start of me shifting out of testing, as I said, in those days, agility, and probably haven't gone back in on that. Now, that's not to say that it's necessarily bad, 
But my where I do have concerns about it is where we take the lessons from change of direction tests and we expand them out into the wider world of agility. Because if we take any change of direction test, we tend to measure two things. We The most obvious one is time. So we presume that doing something quicker is doing something better. And occasionally we'll put force platforms or something in to measure more force. More force is necessarily better. Yet in many movement instances in the game that's not necessarily the case my my goal is simply to perform a task not necessarily to move as quick as i can or with as much force as i can so when i take the results and the conclusions from those change of direction studies and expand them out to me i exclude too many critical things that explain or contribute to agility performance. So when I when I change direction in a game context, if I look at what's happening, I'm assessing the spatial characteristics of the environment, where my team are, where the ball is, where the opposition acts, the temporal, how quick are they moving, how quick am I moving? What's the ultimate goal of that, of my movement pattern? What information is available? What information am I able to process? And so on. And that, taken together, dictates the movement that I have to do. And that differs so much from what we consider as change of direction from our tests. And I think the danger in is if we read too much and we take a purely research-focused approach, we exclude so many of these things. So I'm as likely to chat to somebody who's played the game and say, what would you do when you're faced with this scenario? How would you cope with somebody who you know is faster than you, who, who you know has a really sharp change of direction and so on? And use, combine that information with what I'll get from the research information. And that, that I find gives me a more all-encompassing understanding of what's going on. And when I think when I get into this, I got into this through trying to be a decent rugby player. Total failure, but I tried. <laughs> um, but it... I often relate back, when I watch a movement pattern or, or I, I read something that somebody said, I'll think, well, would I have done that? Is that what I faced in the game? Is that what I've had to coach in the game? And it's just uh, an ability to, to triangulate all of that information, I, I think is quite a useful way of looking at uh, change of direction, capacity and agility. First question, the one that came to me just now, and based on your playing experience, what level did you play at, Ian? What level did you get to? What did I get to? Um, you have to think back. This is a long, long time ago. So this, I my rugby career went 83 through 98. So it was 15 years. 
And in 95, okay. it turned professional. Yes, I was going to say that, just on the cusp. Yeah. So it's just on the, on the cusp. So I actually signed a professional contract in 95, but it was more a semi-professional contract. So I was playing before the Welsh regions came in. Um, my, my club's teams were Swansea, Ebervale, Newport and Cardiff. So you played at a good level, really good level. It was a, de- it was a decent level. I, I wouldn't say I was ever the superstar, but uh, I, I hung around for a long time, put it that way. <laughs> Do you think, and coming on to my, my question based on that, do you think the way you've just, just described your thought process when it comes to not testing and doing the things that we'll have a little chat a bit more about now yeah. or in a second, do you think your playing career... And how you reflected on that has helped that thought process? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's just another frame of reference that I can refer to to help me understand movement. So I I said, I I pretty much, I think, triangulate three areas. My experiences as a player, my experiences as a coach, and my experiences as, as an academic and I don't think I can fully understand it from only one of those perspectives. Nice little visual. I like that. I like that a lot. Um, yeah, and, and and I'm not saying that one of those or any of those is superior, but I think having the capacity to go to each one is something that I value. It may not be anything that somebody else would would get a lot out of, but it's just a way of, as much as anything, simplifying what we make remarkably complex. I think some of our terminologies uh, when it comes to skill acquisition are so complicated, they're not easily accessible, especially to um, coaches who may not be undertaking academic qualifications. Yet, some of the tenets underlying these, are, I think, are relatively simple to understand. Mm-hmm. Just going back to the testing. So we do a test. We've got everyone lined up. We've got the speed gates set out. We've got everything sorted. It's very comfortable. It's very structured. We get a number. It's good, bad. It, it, we turn it. It turns out when we put it into our nice Excel, it goes green, amber, or red. Very nice, very neat. And we can go to a coach and go, they got better or worse. Superb, fantastic. However, what you've just, just described may scare people because it's not neat. It's not. It can be packaged. It can oh. be packaged up. So I'm. What I'm going to ask is, what are the scenarios based on that little description? What are the scenarios that you would try to pick out to try and make sense of the movement movements that you're seeing? to be able to make a decision moving forwards? Right. I I think we, as coaches, have to become much more comfortable in the land of uncertainty. <laughs> not, underst- not understanding everything doesn't actually stop us from acting. Okay. So I don't understand everything that goes on in the, in the agility scenario. I don't think anybody ever will. But that doesn't stop me from interacting and coming up with 
decent results. So to, to me, the biggest uh, influence I could have is to help the athlete play the game more effectively. That's what to me movement ultimately is about. So yes, it's nice to have our spreadsheets, our RAG systems and so on. But ultimately what the athlete wants from me is, can I score more goals? Can I make more breaks? Can I, can I improve my defensive capacities? And when the athletes see that, see those changes, when they see what you've practiced coming out into the game, I find the buy-in in what we do increases exponentially. And the understanding of what we're doing on the training field and how it relates, I find that is far more powerful actually than an improvement in the test score, especially if they don't see the relationship between the test score and what they're doing on the field. So a lot of my training has always been built around, right, can I improve? So I was a rugby winger. What I needed to be able to do was make outside breaks, inside breaks. I need to understand what I need to be able to do in order to do that. And what that brings out then is once you start to look at it like that, the added aspects of a cut, for example, it changes the whole nature of it. So offensively, I'll first of all move to shift you out of position before making that cut. Now, does that increase the force of the cut? No, it decreases it. Does it increase the speed of the cut? No, it decreases it. But it makes the cut more effective. And therein lies the contradictions of our measurements and what's effective in the game. And what I've found is that I've always shifted towards what's effective in the game rather than purely focusing on the measurements. Good example. Great example. I definitely would be going with that first drop shoulder as well as a defender. Sold. Yeah, I'd be going. You know, you're there. Yeah, I'd be going. I'll be, I'm gone. I'm, I'm gone. I'm back. I'm gone. I'm gone for my team. That's it. And that's why I've loved... Um, I've always tried to kind of find ways of explaining this. And when I was reading about the Uda Loop and John Boyd's uh, description of uh, the military out in the Korean War. And I'm think as I'm reading that, I'm thinking, this is what, this is a great analogy for agility in that ultimately a lot of, a lot of the games we play is a competition between myself and yourself. As you're defending me, I'm trying to get you to believe I'm going to do something before changing my action. Now, interestingly, a lot of what I do there is I actually take speed off what I do you know I'll if I want to get outside you I'll actually slow down a little bit to stop to pull you in before I accelerate a lot of great athletes will tell you that sometimes people with just one speed even if it's ridiculously quick are quite easy to mark mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because they 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 don't induce any uncertainty into you you, you kind of know exactly what they're going to do the Thierry Henry in football, slow people down almost to a stop and then go and, and then kill go. them every time. I used to, 
as a Chelsea fanatic, Eden Hazard was one of the best I'd yes. seen at doing that. He would just almost yeah. stop, and then yeah. he'd be gone. And yeah. and and therein is a, is another issue. Sometimes we'll measure right what's fastest over ten meters, and we'll figure out ways. But Henri Hazard will beat you over two meters. It's that first step, and once they're away from you. It doesn't matter that if you can catch them over 10, they've already done what they need to do with the balls in the back of the net and so on. So we're just going to get a very quick break in the chat with Ian. Hope you enjoyed part one. So over in part two, we dive into some specific examples of how Ian has coached or coaches agility in a team sport setting. So unbelievable as the part as part one was, unbelievable part two coming up with Ian. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimise return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer-life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions, and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicom, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website iMeasureU.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. And this episode is also sponsored by Black Box Fitness. Black Box Fitness are leaders in performance training equipment and facility design. Blackbox are specialists in designing and building performance facilities for sports teams and strength and conditioning coaches. Blackbox manufacture and distribute a full range of strength training equipment from their headquarters in Belfast right across Europe. If you want to learn more about Blackbox, check out their website blackboxfitness.com or follow them on social media at blackboxfitness. And this episode is also sponsored by Kitman Labs. Kitman Labs is sport's first technology company to offer a complete solution that includes innovative analytics and an advanced athlete management platform that is supported by a team of sports, technology and data science experts with over 200 years experience. Kitman Labs is leading the evolution of sports performance, partnering with over 150 elite teams across the NFL, NHL, MLB, AFL, EPL and Championship Rugby. Through advanced statistical analysis, rigorous scientific research and unparalleled industry experience, they've architected the world's only analytics platform that helps sports teams to truly harness their data and uncover the influences behind performance optimization and injury risk. To find out more about Kitman Labs, visit kitmanlabs.com or follow them on social media at Kitman Labs. And now back to the interview with Ian. So are you all right to take us, potentially take us through a bit of an example from you're working with an athlete, you've got some video or you watch them in person. What are you yeah. looking for? And then maybe a bit of a, 
step-by-step rough quick guide of how that then translates into tomorrow's session or the next day's session and just linking all that together because i think that's where i suppose the confusion may lie right perhaps the best example is a little bit of work i did up in norway um Guy who's become a really close friend of my, Stein Rodal, he was at one of the NSCA's conferences. They, they, they ran a couple of European conferences back in 2008, 2009, around there. And I d- I'd just done a, a game speed session. And he hung around at the end. He said, would you come up and do some work with our football team uh, up in Buda in the uh, north of Norway? I said, yeah, I'd love to come up. So we went, you know, we, we, we planned for that. And then a couple of weeks before it, he he said, the handball team are going to come back to training. Would you do a couple of sessions with them? Now, you know, us in the UK are not known as handball specialists. We, we, <laughs> we haven't got the great expertise in that. The Welsh people have got probably even less expertise <laughs> in that. So... Um, so I said, yeah, I'll do it. And then I thought, oh, my God, what the hell am I going to do? So all I did was watch a few videos of handball and figured out what the movements were, but critically what the, what the goals of each movement was. So what you saw was that the guys in the middle, defensively, they had to protect that ring. That's that circle. So it is actually quite physical. The that's where the big people tended to be, uh, and then they were the offensively they were were to shift those out of position to be able to get a shot away. The outside people were much more not marked so tightly, and and, and much looser. And, and, and much kind of more varied movement patterns. So all, all I did was looked at my my game speed syllabus and said, right, they do a lot of jockeying. They do a fair bit of side shuffling. They do a lot of very close change of direction, some of it facing up, some of it back, back to back. And we worked on those skills. And at the end of the session, they they literally said, well, wow, that's the closest we've ever had a session to the movements that we do in a game. Normally, we just do traditional sprints, traditional agility drills, and so on. You must have worked with handball quite a bit. So, obviously, yeah, obviously, I thought, well, I can't lie. I said, no, but to be honest with you, what I looked at was the similarities with experiences, and it was a lot of what I'd done with basketball players and especially rugby players and footballers. So that's what, what kind of a, a good example of, if you can look at the movements, but critically look at why athletes are moving in a, in a certain way, what's the goal of the movement? And then that allows you to figure out what the movement needs to be like. So they weren't just side shuffling and jockeying, they were doing it in close proximity with a lot of physical contact. So they were constantly having to adjust foot position, body position. If they were up, they were out of the game. And that's kind of the approach that I've always done. 
And then what you can start to do then is to identify strengths that certain athletes have and weaknesses that certain athletes have. And interestingly, once you go down that route, what, what you start to see is the anomalies that we often see where an athlete on paper may not be great, but in the middle of the game are amazing. But also the anomalies where certain athletes will look like world beaters on one day and then be totally anonymous in a different game. So you'll see certain athletes with capacities when there is a lot of space to run into look really, really great. But then, so, so for example, a football low block, uh, when you've got, the team comes and they've got the five and four, they just leave the one man up. Those same players struggle to cope with that because there's no move uh, space to accelerate in and they've got to create those. And sometimes they don't have the skills to shift somebody out and then there's that rapid acceleration into a short space. Does that answer your question or have I just rambled? Absolutely. No, no, absolutely. I'm absolutely does answer the question. I'm just thinking now of an example. And for some reason, a Paul Gascoigne comes to mind. And I'm just wondering if you put him on a 10-meter acceleration or a – maybe not now, in his prime – 10 meter acceleration or a traditional change direction test? Would he excel? I don't think he would. Would he excel? I don't think he, he would. He definitely wouldn't. However, I bet a coach, a technical coach, at the time would watch him playing and going, what fantastic agility he's got. Yeah. yeah. Because he'd, like, he'd send some one way, send the other way. And then go back the first way, or you know, little shuffles and work really night, really well in tight areas. Absolutely, yeah. and yeah. those are the kind of things that we're probably a strength and conditioning coach is not necessarily great at picking up because we're not taking the context into consideration. We're looking at it from simply from the viewpoint of our global variables, and not considering well, how does he do that? What the hell does he do? I remember watching Lionel Messi. He came to Stamford Bridge. And as I said, I'm a massive fan. And what amazed me was how he walked for considerable <laughs> periods of the game. Just almost looked totally disinterested until the opportunity comes. So me as a defender, oh, he's, he's no danger back there. Once he got, boom. And he ran once, and I can't remember who the Chelsea defender was, and he just shifted his body weight. Defender went that way, he went that way. And I'm thinking, wow. But he's another player who probably, in terms of the, the tests, would not necessarily excel. I, I, I've come to call it top trumps thinking, whereby you, know, you think of those old trading cards where we always look yeah, at the biggest yeah. figures as being the best. With some of these, their headline scores are not necessarily great, but they have a knack. Mm. And I think where the game speed concept lies is often an underexplored area because we tend to shift our strength and conditioning focus onto those headline, you know, make them stronger, make them headline faster. The sports coaches look at the techniques and the tactics of the game and this sports-specific movement is often something that nobody picks up. 
So quite often I'll, I'll watch, say, a Premier League game and you'll see a goal conceded by a corner. The pundits will say, oh, they're using zonal marking or they're man-for-man -man marking or, or, or whatever. They will look for a technical or a tactical reason. And so often it's just a bad starting position. Or it's a great move that somebody else has made that took people into a bad starting position. And those subtleties are often missed because the sports coach is looking for sports-specific reasons. The strength and conditioning coach is looking for headline physical reasons. And it's the subtleties of movement where a lot of the answers to these issues lie. The, the example that you used with the handball, I think it was a, a defensive um, example. Am I right? How you described yeah, it? Yeah, but we also did some of the movements for the offense as well. How can they lose? What do they need to do? And again, it's the shift of the body weight. But that, in turn, requires a, a good level of control. So me shifting there and being able to shift back requires quite a bit of control in those movements. So with within the game speed system, we do work on the control of the movement, the quality of the movement throughout. So each movement pattern that I've identified has a sequence progression attached to it. Well, that, that was my next question. Do you approach defensive agility differently to attacking agility? Yes. Okay. Some of the movement patterns are very similar, but the, the actual deployment of it is quite different. So um, the defense, you have to be able to maintain a position from where you can react, anticipate, integrate and, and force the attacker where you want to go. That requires a mastery of what I call transition movements. And it's interesting that when you look at side shuffling, backpedaling, jockeying, it's the position of control that's important, not necessarily the speed of the movement pattern. So if you watch a master defender, an Ashley Cole or, or Cesar Aspilicueta or, or something like that, they are... You can tell my bias for football, can't you? Um, they, <laughs> they attain a really great position and they're able to maintain that position. But they, the movement looks quite difficult to the offensive player who's much more trying to, to get that defender out of position. And again, it's something that we haven't necessarily focused on. It's starting to come into vogue. I think where we look at what the offensive player is doing, what the defensive player is doing, but it's something I've done for quite a long time. The game speed term. Yes. Why was it? Why was it important for you to differentiate the term and not use something like agility or? It I know, was. Essentially from a, I'm I'm one of these hypocritical people because uh, in all my game speed talks I, I I criticize the definitions, and then I provide the definition of game speed, <laughs> um, which as I said is 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 kind of hypocritical, but it's not the definitions themselves that I had issues with. It was what people had come to understand from it. And the way in which we view something affects the way in which we we train it. 
So what I was saying, because people believed agility to be, and remember this is the olden days where agility was still the closed... Oh, right, agility, I know what we're doing. We're running from cone A to cone B and back to cone C. No, we're not. We're not doing that. Yeah, but that's what agility is. And that was what we were facing. So what I thought is I need something that encapsulates what I'm trying to achieve but it's so fluffy and broad that we don't get the temptation to measure it. So I, I call game speed a context-specific capacity where an athlete uses movement of optimal velocity, precision, efficiency and control to interact with the environment in order to maximize the performance of a sport-specific task. We can't measure that. <laughs> so it takes out the temptation to go, right, let's get a figure for this. It is just a description that allows me to explore, one, the context-specific aspect of it, and secondly, how we move to interact with the environment with the, with the main aim of enhancing that sport-related task. And that's why, that's why I used it. It wasn't to come up with something um, mind-bogglingly new. It was just, it helped me guide my thought processes and not feel that I had to revert to the testing and the traditional uh, methods that were being associated with uh, agility and now change of direction speed. I think I know the answer to this already, but is there any place for testing to get a number in this context? I would never say no, because I always think is if the test can give you information that can assist your decision making, then by all means test. But on the proviso that just be aware of some of the potential downsides of it. So, so, so for example, the uh, the pro agility test has been around for for years, used in the NFL combine. Because it's used in the NFL combine, people have figured out how to do the test most effectively. Nothing wrong in that whatsoever. The downside to that was when people were bringing those methods and believing that they would enhance sports performance. So we had that inside mm-hmm. foot cut, which doesn't pretty much doesn't work in an open environment. You, you know, you can't anticipate when you're going to change direction, and that's to me the danger of it. So I would never say don't test. And if anybody believes that, yeah, it helps me, then please do it. It's the right thing to do it then. Um, I'm never one for universal yes, no, right, wrong. If something benefits you, great. Always, on again, on the proviso that if we tested athletes, we'll we'll train to be better. As long as there are no negative impacts with that, then fine. I prefer... To, to, to screen, to watch. 
So I've got all the, the exercises that I do, and I, I, I've kind of developed this ability to, to be able to say, hmm, that looks good. We need to work on that. We need to work on this. This could be a problem, and so on. And it's just the way that that, that guides my own training. I'm not saying that it's necessarily better, but it's just something that I find works for me. Again, I may be able to preempt this answer, but is there any I'm that predictable, room... am I? No, 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 no. <laughs> oh, jeez. Don't but worry, I'm only teasing. Is there any room for closed drills with any population? What do you think my answer is going to be reason? then? Well, it might replicate the last one. Never say it's never. Exa- it's exactly the same. Yeah. Do I use closed drills? Yes. Okay. I use multiple closed drills. I find them useful for some athletes to help them find certain positions. So every one of my um, movement progressions for every, pretty much every movement that I use in the game speed syllabus has a number of closed drills associated with it. Does that mean to say that I use them all the time? No. Is it to say that I only use open drills all the time? Of course not. And I think what we've become very, very good at in strength and conditioning is we love either or. We love. It's because people like me have podcasts and ask these questions. Well, well, there you go. It's all your fault. (laughs) But, but, you know, do you you like cheese or ham? (laughs) Well, some days you'll eat cheese and some days you'll eat ham. You may even have a ham and cheese sandwich. We're not particularly good at looking at combinations. So anybody watching any sessions I'll ever do will see a mix of closed and progressively open drills and the the relative emphasis changes by the day. It changes depending upon what skill we're working on. It depends on what athlete we're working with, the developmental level and so on. I would never say don't use closed drills because I found them very, very successful for certain things. I would never say don't use open drills because I find them absolutely fantastic for certain things. And it's just targeting, knowing what we want and then selecting appropriately around that. Would there be an example you could potentially give us where you would use a closed drill yeah, so when I'm learning to cut, okay, I have a sequence where we will side shuffle and plant. And what I do there is I emphasize what I'm looking for in terms of the foot position, the knee position, the hip position, the brace of the body, so that the athlete can feel that position. Now, progressively we open that up. But I always then have that position to go back to. That's an anchor that I can use. Right, were you in that position? Were you able to push? Were... So it's it's a it's something that the athlete can relate to. They they've it, hopefully it's become ingrained in them that they understand an effective position. Now there is always bandwidth around that position. There is no one perfect position, but they understand the concepts of exerting force in one direction to produce movement in another direction. 
Superb. Well, I promised you an hour. And although we haven't been recording for an hour, I've definitely kept you for an hour. And I think it's been... It's flown, God, hasn't that it? went quick. It's flown. It has flown. It has, which is great. Because um, it's uh, a sign of it flowing. The conversation's been flowing. So I'm going to thank you for your time, Ian. Let you crack on back on with your evening. Rob, it's an absolute pleasure. I really enjoyed that. Normally, normally I would ask for social media profiles and things, but that'll save a minute, won't that, it? That, we can cut that short, <laughs> I think. Cut that, cut that <laughs> short. But I do know, like you said, about uh, the guys at Stanford wanting to potentially get you on a maybe a Twitter account. Do you think that'll ever do, be doable or not? Oh, I don't think so. I, I think what, what, what I'll do is... is that when I'm doing things, they'll probably post yes. out through yeah. the Satanta account yeah. more than anything else. Yeah. Um, I remember Sean, bless him, talking about, you'd only have to post once a day. <laughs> what? I'd have to go on every day. <laughs> yeah, must be bloody joking on that. But... Um, <laughs> and, and with my one finger typing... <laughs> May take a long time. Be there all day, but no, exactly. Ian. It's been it's been exactly. absolute it's been an absolute pleasure, and um, yeah, good luck. No, pleasure new, I, I know it's not a, a new job anymore, but I uh, wish you all the success at uh, Satanta, and thank you very much for giving up an hour of your time. Stick around, we'll have a little oh, chat. But um, no thank worries, you very much. Rob. Thank you ever so much. Pleasure. And, uh, cheers, Ian. Cheers now. Bye bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 377 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope the chat with Ian lived up to my billing at the start, which I definitely am positive that it did because it was an incredible episode that uh, that Ian delivered there. So thank you very much to Hawking Dynamics, I Measure You, Black Box Fitness, Kitman Labs, and of course, Satanta College for sponsoring this episode today. The podcast couldn't have run its current form without these guys, so I really do appreciate all their support. So have a great new year. This is coming out on the 30th of December, so a couple of days until new year and 2022 kicks in and hoping for a prosperous and better 2022 than we've had in 2021. So thank you very much for your support and I will chat to you next year.